1: Good evening everyone. I'm Allison Camarota, welcome to CNN tonight. The US is bracing for tens of thousands of desperate migrants to try to cross the southern border in a few days. That's when the Trump era policy expires that allowed some migrants to be quickly turned away. Already, men, women, and children are lining up for food, sleeping on the streets. More than 150,000 people are reportedly just across the border waiting to cross. But it's the responsibility of Congress to pass new immigration laws. So what can the Biden administration actually do? Our panel has ideas. Plus, nobody wants to live in fear that we're only a day or two away from the next mass shooting. This past weekend saw another one, eight people killed, this time at a mall in Allen, Texas. The shooter was a 33-year-old who served in the military for three months, but a defense official says he was terminated years ago because of a mental health condition. The shooter appears to have posted a photo of a patch on his clothing that represents a white supremacy group. Of course, these mass shootings make us all feel helpless. So tonight, we'll look at a bill in the Texas House that could be getting some unexpected support. And there's a plan to pay reparations to African-Americans in California. John Avalon is here with the debut of CNN Tonight's Reality Check. But let's start with what we know about the looming immigration deadline. The repercussions of this are spreading across the country. New York City Mayor Ad- Eric Adams announcing a plan to send migrants away from his city to nearby counties, but officials there want no part of that plan.
2: The mayor is engaged in human trafficking of the worst kind. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth talk about how wonderful he's taking care of people and what he's doing, he's putting them in the worst possible situation.
1: All right, we've got a lot to talk about with my panel. We have CNN's John Avalon here, the Los Angeles Times' LZ Granderson, Scott Jennings, who worked with George W. Bush in that White House administration, and the writer and comedian, Akilah Hughes. Great to have all of you. Welcome, Akilah. Great to have you here tonight. Thank
3: you
1: for having me. That's rude. Okay, so Texas doesn't know what to do with this amount of um, immigrants, Mm. migrants, I should say. New York City can't accommodate, they say, this level of migrants. What's going to happen on Thursday night?
4: I think you've got a high chance of, of, of crisis, even though we're trying to marshal forces to, to stop the, the immediate flow. But the sheer number of individuals who are waiting for this uh, to expire is, is a recipe for, for a disaster, or rather a compounding of what's been a rolling disaster. But, but a couple of quick things to keep in mind. First of all, Title 42, that Trump-era policy, was predicated upon COVID. So that's got to be removed. We're, we're back to status quo. And the status quo, of course, is broken. So the people who are politicizing this, uh, we need it, it should highlight the fact that we desperately need to deal with our border. Uh, we need a balanced, comprehensive plan. At the very least, we should be putting forward a plan that Senator Tillis and Cinema put forward to, to, to be more aggressive about border enforcement in this moment.
1: So, uh, LZ, as you know, yeah. New York City for years has prided itself on being a sanctuary city. Um, Now, technically, that means it will protect migrants from being deported by ICE, okay? But there was a feeling that it was safe haven, Mm -hmm. basically, for migrants. And, in fact, it was Eric Adams who tweeted before he was mayor, when he was running for mayor, we should protect our immigrants, period. Yes, New York City will remain a sanctuary city under an Adams administration. Well, now, when he's confronted with, I think they've had something like Mm 60,000 that they've had to deal with this Mm -hmm. year, he is, I mean, I would say changing that that tone.
5: You brought up New York. I immediately thought of a fellow New Yorker. I'm going to kind of paraphrase a little bit, but everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. That's Mike Tyson. (laughs) Mike Tyson. Right? And it's true. I mean, when you think about everyone's campaign promises, Mm -hmm. it's all based upon information that they really don't have, because they're not fully on the inside getting day-to-day data, day-to-day information that you get as an elected official. So they're taking a stab in the dark in a lot of ways. But with that being said, we've got to stop thinking about this as a domestic issue. This Mm. is... A foreign policy issue, mm. because the migrants are coming from other countries. Mm-hmm. We're handling this issue from an American perspective, but if we really want to address the problem. We need to, to change our focus and the paradigm. This is an inter This is different countries, different cultures. We've contributed by our guns and our need for drugs. We need to have a come to Jesus meeting and talk about this like adults and stop thinking we need to stop the border as if that's really the problem.
1: What do you think,
6: Scott? Well, I agree. It, this. We're, we're at the breaking point. There's not a single politician, you know, from Texas to New York who knows what to do about all this. I mean, we, our political system has reached the breaking point. I think this is one of the biggest political problems facing President Biden mm-hmm. And what do you right think now? he's
1: supposed to do about it?
6: Well, I mean, it is the federal government's responsibility to defend our border. I mean, there's a heck of a lot of Americans who see all these people coming across uh, as an invasion.
1: Right, uh, but you are allowed to apply for asylum. That is one of our are. laws.
6: I mean do you think that every single person standing waiting to come in on Thursday believes they are uh, here for legitimate asylum? Or do you think, you, you, you think they're just waiting to, to come in? What I mean, mean? I, I think, I, look, I think the whole thing is broken. It's been broken. Yes, we've been punched in the mouth, but we've been getting punched in the mouth for years and years and years here in our... Well, we polit- started the fight, too. In our political system has <laughs> totally failed to, to deal with it. So I'm, I'm thinking this is going to be a bigger problem and just one other issue on politics. Political problems get real bad when there's video and pictures. We're not having people fighting about esoteric ideas. You can see
7: mm-hmm.
6: what's happening, and and so you can't go to the podium and say, oh, no, don't worry, we have it under control, which they have done. Or don't worry, it's not as bad as the Republicans say, which they have done. The Republicans are going to pass a bill on Thursday out of the House. Yep. It's a good start. The president ought to talk to the Republicans if he's serious about solving it.
1: Akilah, okay, here's the House bill, I mean, the bill that Republicans want to and will pass on Thursday. Increasing use of expedited <clears throat> removal surge fifteen hundred troops. To, oh no, sorry, this is Biden's plan. Let me first start with the Republican plan, then I'll get to the Biden's plan. Uh, so the GOP immigration bill is the, keep the Remain in Mexico policy, resume wall construction, ban funds for migrant charities, improved border surveillance technology, and funding for more personnel at the border.
3: I just don't see how any of that addresses the issue. I mean, if th- these are all things that they have proposed in the past. There are things that they have funded in the past the wall that whatever is there right now hasn't stopped anybody from trying to get here. Having more of it isn't going to stop people from coming here. I think at the base of all of it is you know letting people come to this country with dignity. And uh, I think that's, for me, as an American citizen, what seems to be the most fraught point at this point. But people have always come here seeking asylum, seeking citizenship, whatever. It's just now we have you know the political game book of let's put people on buses, let's ship them out, let's mm-hmm. Use them as pawns and frankly i think people are tired of that but do you think that mayor adams is playing political gamesmanship in other words if he's
1: saying his city which is a sanctuary city can't accommodate (sighs) them is that political or is that
3: reality I think that he's always been trying to win points with Republicans based on his policies. I think he got elected True. largely because Republicans <laughs> support him. I mean, a Democrat's always going to be the mayor of, of New York. Unless, no. you know, there's Bloomberg, but, I mean, come and, on.
5: Yeah, Let's but Bloomberg was... And,
3: and,
4: uh, and l- Lindsay and LaGuardia. Right, you, right. Have
3: to, you have to have a level of being very centrist. And right. he ran yes. on centrist ideas. Right. And I think that if he was, you know, owning up to the fact that New York is a very diverse city with millions, tens of millions of people in it... Um, um, then he would just continue well, with what, being a Sanctuary City. What, but he needs to, he needs those votes. needs
4: So let me put on my, my old I used to work in City Hall hat for a second. All right. So the Sanctuary City point is, is ironic. Um, but remember, it stemmed from a concern about public health. The city's always been a-, a nation of immigrants. The concern was is that people wouldn't go to hospitals or schools if they were afraid of the INS knocking at their door. What Eric Adams is dealing with, I think, highlights the fact that this is a federal problem that needs a federal solution. And the mayor of New York has never dealt with this level of undocumented immigration because all of a sudden he's seeing an influx from the border in a way that New York and other cities and states were shielded from. Sure. And that highlights the sense of crisis, and they are unprepared to deal with 60,000 migrants being d- dropped in their city to score political points. So if and, a city and,
6: uh, as big as New York is unprepared to deal exactly with fair. it... yeah. How about yeah. any small town or any moderately-sized
5: town along the Texas border? Clear, ter- Terribly... Un- and uh, and this is why when you look at a state like Texas, right, which is way more purple than what I think the average person knows, mm-hmm. but when they think about it, they think it's red. And why do these officials keep getting reelected? Because Democrats aren't having these kind of conversations about this issue. And people who actually live on the border, people who live in these border states, they're real issues. These are ideas that are floating in the air if you're living in New York, if you're living in California, Mm -hmm. in the northern part of the state. These are real day-to-day issues. And you're talking about uh, uh, cities like, a city like San Antonio. If there were... All of a sudden, a thousand more people introduced in a city like San Antonio. I'm not quite sure what it could do. And that's a top 10 city in terms of the U.S. population. I mean, just look mm-hmm. at the video
1: of El Paso. I don't know if we have it, but people are, you know, there are 10 cities on the, right. on the sidewalk. People, right. they, they are having a hard time absorbing it. I mean, I hear what you're saying, like mm-hmm. in terms of compassion, for sure. But the practicality
3: is these... Cities don't seem to be able to have a place to put folks. Well, that's 100% true. I think we can see it from the video. (laughs) But I also think that when you, you know, you show the Republican talking points about how they'd like to handle it, the border wall is not the solution a wall is is, is a symbol. <laughs> it is not in, in practice stopping anyone from coming in. But. Having more personnel there, we've had more personnel there year after year after year. We're not losing people, you know, we're not losing that profession. So I, I feel like we're just doing that thing where we put money towards enforcement of something that is right. not the heart of the issue.
5: Because it's not the northern border that we should be talking about. It's Mexico's southern border. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like they're coming from Central uh. America and it's like there's a reason why and we're contributing to those reasons why? Mm-hmm. And we're trying to have these separate conversations like they're not intermingled, but they are. And, and that's a more comprehensive conversation that needs to be had policy-wise. And
4: the Biden administration's begun saying, look, we need, we need to invest in actually stability in, in some of these Central American countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these migrants are coming from places like Nicaragua and Cuba, and, and it's a, it's a, it is a it's it is a a larger problem. Fair point. But look, every crisis contains an opportunity. And re- Democrats need to understand that this is not, to, as you say, some abstract issue. This is fundamental that folks are feeling, and the, the Biden administration needs to work with Republicans, and it may have more border security elements than Democrats might like, but deal with the Problem. I think, Deal with the problem, Congress.
6: I think, I think I think you're right, and I think just like on the debt limit. Come Thursday, it'll be the Republican Party in Washington has passed a bill on both of those issues. How'd you
5: do that? Biden, how'd you and Biden do that? has done nothing. We were having just, a substantive this is, conversation.
6: This is the everybody political, everybody is the political reality Joe Biden's living in right now. <laughs> Republican Party <All> passing, <laughs> my friend. Oh my passing oh. legislation. You just said Congress should pass bills. Yes. They, yes. They, <laughs> they, they have passed bills yes. on both issues. We should also not default yes. on our debt.
4: I, also
3: I agree. agree. Yes. That's why yes. the Republican Party passed a bill to raise it. Right, but I mean we want to talk about everything Republicans are passing because what about the guns? I don't think you want to have that conversation. uh, (laughs) We are going to have that conversation Uh, momentarily. Okay,
1: thank you very much. And we are learning more tonight about the Texas mall shooter. Of course, we've got an epidemic of gun violence. Of course, we are living in fear of the next one. So what can we do about it? We'll talk about it. We're learning more about the gunman who killed eight people at a Texas mall. Sources say that he used an AR-15-style gun that he purchased legally. According to a defense official, he was removed from military service because of mental health issues. His social media included posts about right-wing extremist ideology and his obsession with guns. One post shows a tactical vest with the letters RWDS, which stands for Right-Wing Death Squad. That's a logo used by white supremacist groups. Another photo shows a stash of ammunition. We're back with John Avalon, Elsie Granderson, Scott Jennings, and Akilah Hughes. So, so much of this sounds familiar, Scott, from all of the other mass shootings. You know, do you agree that whatever the U.S. is doing or has done in the past few years is not working to stop mass shootings? And, in fact, they're increasing.
6: Uh, Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are people who are, at a minimum, uh, need further review that are getting their hands on guns. This actually reminds me. A few years ago in Texas, there was a shooting, a former military member, I think he was in the Air Force, and he had had some issues there, and that information didn't get transferred to the database, and he wound up, was that the church shooting, I think, maybe? And, uh, and so, similar deal, where you've got a guy here who clearly had mental health flag somewhere that never made it into a system that would have been picked up by a background check. And when I hear Republicans say, uh, look, we need to focus on mental health, and we need to make sure those things get flagged. Obviously, this guy had a mental health flag, and so uh, that, that's what jumps out to me about so,
1: this one. So, Scott, I'm just sticking with you because you are, you talk to Republicans. You are a Republican. <laughs> you're connected to Republicans. And so when the Fox poll from, you know, a, two weeks ago shows the majority of voters favor these proposals, background checks on all gun buyers, 87 percent, enforcing existing gun laws, 81 percent, legal age going up to 21 to buy all guns. That's 81% of Americans require mental health checks. That's 80%. We're not doing that now. Flag people, so red har- you know, red flag laws that are dangerous to themselves. 80% require a 30-day waiting period. Not all states are doing that. 77%. Why aren't Republicans seizing on this?
6: Well, there are some Republicans who represent areas that don't share those views. I mean, that's a poll of Americans. Uh, But you get into some areas of the country that are represented by Republicans that are pretty red and pretty conservative, and they don't think uh, that infringing upon the Second Amendment, their Second Amendment rights, uh, as a law-abiding gun owner, that's the way they would see it, uh, is a a cure for somebody, some crazy person who goes out and does something heinous uh, elsewhere. And so uh, it's a a clash between national polling and, I think, individual constituent-based polling. And uh, I think if you ask most Republican members of Congress— they would say they hear far more uh, from those constituents in their districts than they hear from from others.
3: A killer, your thoughts? Uh, I think their Second Amendment rights are the same as every other American's. And very clearly it says well-regulated militia. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about no regulation. We're talking about states like Texas that are trying to allow more people to have guns with fewer regulations. And I think that those polling numbers show you that people take this seriously. Like this isn't just a, a an idea. Like the, the idea that we could go to the mall and not come home with all of our family members is a reality. There are people in the hospital right now. There's a little boy in the hospital who lost his entire immediate family. So when I hear about the gun rights that these people, you know, in their hypothetical will they need to have an AR fifteen in their house, why does that supersede the rights of a child to have a family? I it it is devastating it is the biggest shame of this nation at this time and i frankly i want i i hear you say the people in congress republicans in congress care about this issue but what evidence is there that supports that
6: well they did pass i'll just point out in the last congress bipartisan legislation passed with by a wide margin you had top republicans and top democrats that joined together. And I think they went about as far as Congress has been. I
1: know, but the problem is is that it didn't address these things that so many Americans say by 80% they want.
6: Yeah, not everything was in there that that some people wanted. That's absolutely true. But it it was hailed at the time as one of the largest leaps forward in several years.
4: It was progress on an issue that has been stalled by special interests for a long time. You know, those numbers you show, the super majorities of Americans, that was true after Sandy Hook. Uh, And yet nothing was done. Um, and, and if you look, I mean, the American people's concern about crime is a concern about gun violence. This is, is rooted in fear. And the problem is, is that because of our rigged system of redistricting, a lot of politicians feel that they can ignore what supermajorities of the Americans want. Um, uh, but, but I do think that, um, look, this is about as these gun laws have changed, they've gotten easier to get guns, more guns, and add that to not only to an environment of fear, but also extremism in this case, Mm -hmm. extremist ideology, that, is a deadly combination, and we keep seeing evidence of that.
1: Oh, he had the entire trifecta of things that mm-hmm. make it dangerous to have access mm-hmm. to a gun in this one shooter. Elsie, um, of course, on this program, we do look for small beacons of light where we can. Mm-hmm. And so in Texas today, there were two Republicans who joined with Democrats in on a committee, okay, to vote a bill out of committee. So this was basically procedural. However, it is a bill to raise the age, age in yeah. your home state yeah. from 18 to 21, They could have blocked that out of committee, but they didn't. Who knows what will happen when it gets to the floor?
5: Who knows what will happen when it gets to the floor? It is a little beacon of light, um, a little bit a year after the massacre in Uvalde. You know, I hate writing about these shootings, but I write about these shootings all the time because I will hate more not being affected by the shootings. And my biggest fear, really, is as the ineptitude of Congress continues on, that the public stops talking about it. And that we start thinking that this is acceptable. And then we normalize normalize it. And I start thinking about things like the Internet, right? And that was just, what, 20, 30 years ago. And now we have no control whatsoever. And now we're trying to introduce artificial intelligence on top of a situation in which we already have no control. It'll get
4: worse. It'll it'll get
5: worse. So, worse. so, So I think about guns. I just sit there and I just go... You know, at, at some point, Republicans, and I hate picking on Republicans because I, I am an independent thinker. We just had a conversation that surprised both of us in the hallway. You know I'm <laughs> an independent not. thinker. But the proof is in the pudding. It's Republicans that's effing this up, man. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm just being real with it. And they've been dragging this on, and our children are dying in schools at a level. I grew up when we had metal detectors, so children dying in school wasn't in and of itself shocking. But these numbers...
1: There's no denying. It. I mean, there's no denying that it's getting worse. There's no denying that kids feel like sitting ducks in their schools. That's yes. just our reality right now.
5: And and Republicans, there's no denying they're the party most responsible for not having any progress on the list that you just presented.
1: What were you guys talking about in the hallway?
6: Oh, <laughs> oh, well, we talk about a lot of things. But let me let me just address.
1: Very quickly. <laughs> Wait, I, very quickly. Very quickly. Well,
6: there's a fundamental disagreement between Republicans and Democrats over the root cause of violence. Republicans would say there are deep societal issues going on in America that have nothing to do with guns, but everything to do with uh, societal issues and a fundamental lack of respect for human life and human dignity that transcends guns or any other weapon. Democrats, obviously, and liberals believe it's the guns. They're just nowhere near crossing lines on the graph right now. That's the fundamental debate. So to say that Republicans are effing it up is to say, I don't find your argument about the root causes of this to be valid. Just like on the immigration question we debated in the first segment. If, if I said to you, everything you just said is invalid because I fundamentally disagree with you, that, that wouldn't be a very productive conversation. You know. To me, where, this, where the rubber hits the road here is liberals are going to have to understand that there are people who take the Second Amendment and their individual right, according to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. to keep and bear arms very seriously. And conservatives are going to have to take what you said and what everybody else has said here about the need for safety, very seriously only then will anything move on this and 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 the in the poll numbers show yeah. the potential political will somewhere yeah. in the soup but it but it but it won't ever gel until Scott, until there's a fundamental
2: yeah we have Scott, to go validation of each other's arguments seconds. here 10
5: seconds greg abbott governor greg abbott said that mental health is the biggest issue driving mass shootings that man cut 211 million dollars from the department that handles mental health in Texas. So when I say Republicans are effing it up, I'm not taking it lightly, man.
1: Okay. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Thank you very much for all those perspectives. Let's talk about this. A panel in California taking another step towards reparations payments to black residents. Each eligible person could get up to $1.2 million. How would California be able to foot the bill? Well, the devil's in the details, and John Avalon is here to bring us his reality check. Next. going to do some math. Yes, we are. Okay, we've got a favorite segment to bring you on CNN tonight. John Avalon is here with our reality check. So, John, great to see you. Explain how California is dealing with reparations.
4: Ali, it's great to see you, too. Reality Check is back with you. All right, let's talk about reparations. Now, the word is often used as a scare tactic from the right or redistributionist fantasia from the left. But now we got something more concrete to work with. Because California's official reparations task force just this weekend voted to approve its recommendations. Now, their final proposal, which will be submitted to the state legislature next month, covers more than the cost of slavery to its descendants. Remember, this is in a state that was on the Union side in the Civil War. Now, the package also proposes payments for decades of housing discrimination, healthcare disparities, and mass incarceration. Now, their calculations are based on equations that look like this. But the bottom line is that eligible individuals could receive up to $1.2 million each. And some economists estimate, get this, it could cost California taxpayers between $500 and $800 billion, with a B. Now, this is much bigger than California's total budget is currently facing a 22 billion dollar deficit despite having one of the highest state tax rates in the nation so that's a significant practical problem right compounded by the fact that reparations are broadly unpopular get this a 2021 pew study found that more than two-thirds of americans oppose reparations and that includes majorities of every age group income range and racial demographic except for african americans Race is a fundamental fault line in our country, rooted in the original sin of slavery that extended through segregation. Massive resistance to multiracial democracy is a recurring theme in our politics. But hundreds of billions in cash-based reparations, while perhaps morally appealing, are likely going to be counterproductive when it comes to uniting the nation going forward. Dealing with enduring inequities will require a more inclusive approach— Like this, listen to what then presidential candidate Barack Obama said to CNN back in 2008.
6: The best reparations we uh, can provide are good schools in the inner city and jobs for people who are unemployed. Uh, Strategies that invest in lifting people out of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. Uh, but that have broad applicability and and allow us to build coalitions to actually get these things done. That, I think, is the best strategy.
4: And that's your reality check.
1: Just as good as ever, John. It's back with a vengeance. Well done. All right, let's talk about it. So, uh, um, Akilah, that sounds like a non-starter. If the solution, the
3: financial solution, is bigger than California's budget, how... Where do we start with that? Uh, we start with the federal government. <laughs> um, I, you Look, there, we saw the chart, black people support this mm-hmm. because they are the descendants of the people who built this nation. Mm-hmm. There are companies that are still rich. Old money in the U.S. comes from slavery. So this idea that black people are going to get that money back through good schools, I haven't seen it. So you don't like Barack Obama's idea? (laughs) Well, 15 years ago, you know, that looks like a totally different person. And I think he was running in a totally different climate in this country. Could he have been outward about his support for reparations at that point? I doubt it. You know, I think... um, Coming out of the Bush era, we didn't really have a lot of people talking about reparations. We didn't have an Internet that's as robust as it is today. We didn't; Our democracy wasn't talking to each other about these issues like they are now. Um, you know, the reparations issue in California became a big deal because of the George Floyd murder. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, to reference something that old, while I appreciate it, reality check rules, uh, <laughs> doesn't seem necessarily like as pertinent as where we are today. Okay. Scott.
6: Well, Barack Obama in 2008 is in agreement with 80% of the American people today. I mean, I. Uh, by the way, if you're worried about California's state budget, wait till I talk to you about the federal budget. <laughs> I mean, the idea of adding to this will be a total non-starter with massive supermajorities of the American people. So, if you're willing to make an argument on guns, hey, we got massive supermajorities that want to do something. Why aren't we doing it? Well, you got massive supermajorities that don't want to do. This and so I'm curious about your your thoughts on the political reality of moving I mean, on this. But and all that having been said, to most people, it's going to sound like a blatantly unconstitutional redistribution from one group of people to another group based purely on race. Which like slavery, was. which is, <laughs> slavery <was>. <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly what which,
3: slavery was for this which, country, right? <laughs> which is
5: which is the deficit. I think is the most important. It isn't the state deficit. It isn't the federal deficit. It's the knowledge deficit. People don't know. People really don't know that Wall Street was built on, a black, on the backs of black people. They generally don't know. When the First Lady talked about the White House and the outrage that she dared knew the history of the White House, it's because our education system, one, purposely kept that information apart, and then, two, some of the faulty schools didn't do an adequate job. And so you have a lot of generations of Americans who don't understand what reparations actually are or the fact that this country is already given reparations multiple times. To whom?
1: Enslavers. And they gave each after the Civil War, because when slaves were set free, they gave a cash um, bonus, whatever, mm-hmm. pay, payment, I should say, yep. to people who had kept who slaves.
5: Lost property was what it was for. We were property. Shout out to your Second Amendment. That wasn't written for black folks, by the way. <laughs> Look,
4: um, it, it, I think the the macro point here is Um, First of all, we need much better education, civics education, about the full range of our history, right? What Barack Obama was talking about in 2008 was if you want to bring together massive legislation to try to deal with these structural inequities, you're going to need to be able to appeal across political and and racial lines. And so it's got to be inclusive in a way that deals with some of those economic disparities. The basic math of this proposal doesn't doesn't work, and it wouldn't work for the federal government because this is just California. but. Look, the conversation is evolving. This seems like a political and practical non-starter, but it can be the gateway to a broader conversation about what we need to do and we need to invest in. But it's got to be broadly
5: inclusive. Otherwise, politically, it doesn't have a chance in a democracy. Because it it, it quantifies, at least it makes an attempt to quantify what we've been talking about anecdotally, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is systemic racism has Mm -hmm. purposely been designed to do this and here are now numbers to support what we've been talking
4: about. I, I think the other challenge is and I, this came up in some of the research is that the vast majority the majority of Americans today their families arrived certainly in my case after the civil war. So that's part of the, the difficulty when all of a sudden you're trying to say, you know, how you're parsing the descendant slaves, well, you know, who and at right. what time and then and then who pays because if it's the taxpayers, it's everybody.
3: Yeah. So it, it's just one of the many complexities. Benefited. Right. I mean Everyone's even out. now right. if you came here in 10 minutes ago you benefit in America from slavery. Right. Yeah. It's just a fact sure our entire our either. entire economy was built, the, the strongest economy in the world was built for free for hundreds of years oh, on the backs of people. Why don't you people. agree with that? So well how it, could it, that not be it, the basis?
4: Slavery, slavery the, the legacy of slavery runs through American culture and our politics to this day. One of the things I said is massive resistance to multiracial democracy is something that we still deal with today. But the idea that every immigrant family today in America is benefiting directly from the legacy of slavery, benefiting directly from the legacy of slavery, I don't buy um, because the legacy of slavery is in the foundational roots of this country and this culture, but the idea that it economically provides a positive benefit for people who are, are new immigrants to this country. Well, why are they coming here if there wasn't an economic benefit?
3: Right. And I, was I, I, redlining not also something that, like, I, I, the I, I, neighborhood I, they were, that they're moving to right. that they're able to gentrify? I, I mean, it, slavery was not like a stop, start, no, Juneteenth, and now we're done. No, no, we no. We are still in that level. All right, last word, John. I have to go.
1: Do You have? <laughs> do you, have, do you, have you a lot. I know I do. <laughs> <laughs> you do. I have noticed you guys ignore it a lot. Um, all right, do you have five seconds of a wrap-up here?
4: The, the, the direct cash payments that are being put forward here today are a political and practical non-starter but the larger conversation is one we can and should have as a way of educating ourselves about our country.
1: And, and I appreciate that conversation that we've all had. And in fact, those numbers are a beginning of an education because those are pretty mind-blowing numbers. So that they, quantifying it like right. that is really helpful to see. So for that, we thank California for being able to put it into, like, math of today that we can understand. Thank you all very much. Be sure to tune in at the top of the hour when some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the scoops they're covering, including new polling that suggests President Biden may have serious challenges heading into the 2024 election. But first, more protests tonight over the death of Jordan Neely, who died after being held in a chokehold on the New York City subway. Will charges be filed? We're going to discuss the latest next. Tonight, protesters on the streets of New York railing against the chokehold death of Jordan Neely on a subway last week. 24-year-old Daniel Penny put Neely in a chokehold after Neely was reportedly shouting at passengers that he was hungry, thirsty, fed up, and ready to go to jail for life. Prosecutors still deciding whether to bring charges against Penny. Earlier, CNN's Omar Jimenez spoke to an eyewitness who saw Penny put Neely in a chokehold. He described Neely then as staring off and being limp after Penny released him.
5: I looked from the window and stuff and I saw that, uh, that his eyes were staring off and that he was limp. So uh, I went in through another door and uh, I said to them uh, to put him on his side so he doesn't choke on like his own spit or something. And um, they flipped him over, Dan- uh, uh, Daniel Penny like, threw his arm out real rough like, and put him around like that. And I went through another door, and um, I went to pour a little water on uh, on uh, Jordan Neely's head, and um, Daniel Penny came up and uh, told me to stop. and He got over him and said, "Stop, all right." And uh, and uh, I, I should have uh, I should have been more uh, more on it, man, and not walked away, but I did.
1: My is back, John. Do you understand why Daniel Penny has not been charged?
4: Um, I presume it's fact-finding, but he should be. This should be equal justice under law. A process should be you know, applied. Um, you know, This brings back, I think, memories or echoes of Bernard Goetz, which was a, the subway vigilante in the early 1980s. Uh, and the answer in any of these difficult questions is apply the law, and it may not have the outcome that people wish to see, depending on your perspective, but you apply the law equally and fairly. But as a reminder, when, when, when fear uh, about public safety starts Infecting people, uh, that's when you see these vigilante moments occur. Uh, that is not to excuse them, or, but as a way of explaining them. And it is a cautionary tale because we cannot have that in a free society. We, we need to operate by law.
1: A source, LZ, familiar with Neely's case, said that he was on New York City Department of Homeless Services' top 50 list hmm. of homeless individuals with acute needs. And that means that people with acute needs are on this list, so they are um, basically looked out for, theoretically by the Department of um, Homeless Services um, so that they're recognized, they can try to get the help they need. I don't know what New York was supposed to do with Jordan Neely.
5: It's what all the cities are supposed to do, take care of its people, right? Like, that's... There are empty buildings all around this country, you know, empty office. And I understand. I know what you're going to say. There are laws. There are policies. There are, no, no, no. There are, there are you know, there are things that, you know, we need to pass so to did make this. you work in
1: City Hall, what are they supposed to do? What well, is the what, answer Well, one to of the
5: things that Mayor Adams is trying to do,
4: which is quite controversial, is 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 forcible institutionalization for some people who are mentally ill. That might not look like taking care of people as some people might want. But when one of the things we're seeing in the wake of COVID is the deinstitutionalization has helped, has created an environment where people feel less safe on the street and assaults are up, even if murders and, mm-hmm. and shootings are down in New York City at this particular moment. That contributes to this environment. So uh, in some cases, it's the This institutionalization.
5: This is what I mean by take care of his people. Is that? Do, do you know why he asked to go to jail? Because it was the only place where he could get food, water, and shelter. He wasn't asking to go to jail because he felt as if he was bad. The, he he was begging for not, food. He well, was I mean, asking that's an interpretation. For, that's, that's an interpretation. But there are for homeless food shelters for, all throughout the city. But he's been arrested, what, eight, well, he, 18 times, was it?
1: Oh, 18 times? Maybe, maybe more. So that,
5: that indicates times. a larger so, problem.
4: That's not, you know, <laughs> yeah. jail is not the only place you can go for, for shelter. Okay, and, and
3: Hold that and thought, Aquila. I just feel like if we're going to talk about why we have these issues and why people feel unsafe on the street, we also can't ignore the fact that our mainstream media talks about crime like it's in your house. Like, they're coming to your door. You can't turn down the wrong driveway without getting shot. You can't mm-hmm. ring the wrong doorbell without getting but isn't, shot. I mean, you can't scream on the subway without right. being choked to death. But these are real stories. I mean, yeah, I know that this you're, is real. you're saying that the media has a responsibility right, here, but, but we I, are reporting on these things that are happening. Absolutely. And these are, but those things are happening, you know, it's, it's begetting itself at this point, right? Where people are so afraid of this crime that's going to happen, they can't ride a subway with someone who's yelling. They can't get off the subway when they hear someone yelling. They can't offer a dollar or just move. That amount of discomfort is enough to act. And I think you're right. We've created a system where there are there's a lot of inequality, which breeds crime, which breeds uh, mental instability, which causes these problems. And then we also have that other side of it, which is a mental instability of people who can't even handle to see it. Go ahead.
6: I think New York City has failed Jordan Neely. I think they're failing Thousands of people every day. You see them on the street, walk around town, uh, and and you encounter them. The difference is, in this case, if you saw them on the street and you felt like you were in an unsafe situation, you can cross the street. When you're in an enclosed subway car and you have a reasonable uh, belief that you or others might be in danger, that, to me, is the different story here. I don't have all the facts. None of us were on the car to know exactly the way Neely was happening, but I suspect there's more to learn. Uh, No
3: one else tried to strangle him.
6: Well, I don't know who was on the subway car, but if if you are in a situation in an enclosed box with someone who you believe who you believe might be a way. danger
5: to you or others, but, but you, you, it is also a a to your point a comfort level too. Like I lived in downtown LA, skid row was not too far from where i lived. I saw a lot of homeless people, mm-hmm. but I understood how to operate and not be panicky about it. But if you're coming from a place in which you don't have that exposure and you come across someone who may be having a difficult moment, I could see why you would be fearful. But we can't have a culture in which your fear is allowed to take someone's life.
3: Right. I mean, murder is always illegal. And I know right. it's alleged, but right. the point is you can't just start strangling people because you're afraid of what they might do. Right. And I think, like, to be a person who is constantly online and hearing that, you know, it's an irrational argument that somebody being dead now because they were loud and someone was uncomfortable, uh, that, to me, is, like, beyond anything this country can can fix. Like, we we need to be on the same page about murder being wrong, right? Right.
1: (laughs) All right. Thank you all very much for that. And we will be right back. All right. We've all experienced airline flight delays and cancellations. President Biden thinks the airlines should compensate passengers when the carriers are at fault. His administration will propose a new rule later this year, making it mandatory that airlines pay for meals, hotels, taxis, and other costs. I'm back with Scott and LZ about how they feel about this and they have for some reason switched brains. <laughs> and now LZ, you think there should not be a law and then the free market should decide. I didn't, I didn't yes.
5: know the L and LZ stood for libertarian. <laughs> I had no idea. But as soon as I saw it, the first thing I thought of is, I'm a constant traveler. We all travel constantly. And one of the conversations constant travelers have is about the airlines and right? who flies where and wh- what to avoid. So why don't and,
1: you like this law?
5: Let the free market decide, if this airline is terrible, trust me, we'll stop using it and it will go away and something will come in its place. There's enough regulations in government right now.
1: And suddenly Scott, you say (laughs) no to the free market. You need government regulation. I so
5: badly
6: want to (laughs) welcome LZ to the Republican Party. (laughs) However, in this this moment, I'm actually sympathetic to the president on this because I think of airlines as already being quasi-public whatever governmental agencies anyway, because of the heavy regulations are already under. And I do think passengers are fundamentally disrespected and they have their constitutional rights violated from the minute they walk into an airport to the minute they walk out of it. And so I think we need a complete and total overhaul. I think this rule could be part of it. I think of rethinking of the whole TSA experience. I think from soup to nuts, we have so royally screwed up air travel in the United States that some smart person And the next administration could sit down and say, how do we respect passengers, respect the Constitution, just get people wherever the hell they need to go?
1: And you, you don't want? get soup or nuts on airlines anymore. Um, oh. Thank you guys both very much. This is what you get on CNN Tonight, a complete switching up and you never know what to expect. That was great, John. I'll get you Wayne Paul's number. Thank you. That's <laughs> all right. You <Think, laughs> that one. Uh, I'm good. All right. Thank you guys. Coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here to talk about the stories they're working on for tomorrow. They're going to share their scoops with us next. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters to share their scoops. Here with me, we have Harry Anton, Fina Jones, Shimon Procupes, and Sarah Murray. Great to have all of you guys on the couch tonight. Okay, another Texas town is reeling after a mass shooting at an outlet mall over the weekend that killed eight people and wounded seven. Others. Tonight, we're learning more about the 33 year old gunman and his actions leading up to this shooting. Shimon Prokopez is following the story. Okay, start with what's next in this investigation. I mean,
8: ultimately, right now, you know, as much as we know about this individual and really the hate, uh, the hate that he believed in, uh, really, there's still this thing that they need to do, authorities, is to figure out the motive. You know, did, is there something else going on here that perhaps sparked this? And so that's what investigators now are doing. You know, we've learned so much about him through his social media. Yeah. What did we learn today? So he's believes you know, it's just a a person who's filled with hate, uh, uh, anti-black, anti-women, neo-Nazi kind of beliefs and things that he wrote about. Uh, So we know he's 33 years old, uh, he has all of this writing and all of this social media posts. Uh, we also know that, and this is significant, is that he was at the mall casing it out, sort of figuring out when was the busiest time, when was the best time for him to launch his attack. So authorities have a lot of that information now. We know that he purchased the weapons uh, from a uh, private kind of sale. So there was really no uh, way for anyone to do any kind of background check. He was thrown out of the military, essentially, because of mental health issues. Do we know
1: any more details about that?
8: We don't. That's the thing. Like, authorities have not said anything. They haven't said much. Hopefully, we'll get some answers in the coming days. But based off of his social media and some of the other information that's out there, uh, we know a lot about this individual, certainly someone Who's just filled with so much hate, and how he got his hands on these weapons, and what kind of safeguards perhaps should have been in place to prevent prevent that? That is all now obviously being discussed.
1: Yeah, and in terms of the victims, um,
8: some were children. Children, you know, siblings. Uh, one child uh, lost, uh, pretty much the entire family, lost his parents. Um, so, children, the twenty year old security guard from the mall, uh, other sisters uh, who were from a uh, local elementary school. Mm-hmm. So really just, again, so much pain uh, through these communities, you know, uh, who are now reeling after such a, just another horrific attack in Texas. I
1: mean, you've covered, obviously, many of these. We all have covered too many of these. You start to run out of angles to, to talk well, about in terms of, yes, it's mental health. Yes, it's easy access to guns. Yes, it's hate. It's hard to... I mean, and sometimes what I find is that we, we talk about all of this and then we never really
8: get the answer. We never get the And we know the script, right? We know what the police are going to do. We know what the process is at this point. We've all become detectives now, right? Yeah. Because we all know how this works and what, we, what the police are going to do. But there's really never any answers. And it seems like there's never a solution. And so many people now all across this country are wondering, what do you do? How do we stop this? Because this is now almost a daily occurrence, right?
7: And it feels like we used to talk about, like, how people would evade the laws, you know, how they would sort of slip through the cracks to get guns. And now we're just talking about, you know, this is what the laws allow, that you can do these private sales, that in Texas, permitless carry is allowed, that there are just so many easy ways to get guns now. I feel like we have the conversation less of sort of why did these safety nets not catch people, right. and it's just kind of like they're not there. Or
8: was it a straw buyer, right? right or yeah. Was it some illegal weapon that was obtained? No. These are weapons that are being legally purchased. Sometimes in the days before the attack, you know, like we saw in Uvalde, like we we saw uh, in Louisville. It, it, these are these are people who are reacting very quickly a certain feeling that they have, and they go and they purchase these weapons legally. They walk in or through a uh, private seller, as we see here uh, in this latest shooting.
9: And surely, what you said, Sarah, about how we used to talk about them breaking the law, the fact is a lot of these states have made it much easier to get a gun and to carry it without a permit. So you're going to have a lot more guns kind of flooding the system. But one thing that I think is interesting, you often hear from Governor Abbott is the, the, the immediate response is mental health. It's almost like a knee-jerk response. But what, what I see is that there's so much kind of diagnosing of the problem. There's there's just stating that there's this mental health issues that aren't being addressed well by states, by the federal government, by communities. My question is, are they making any efforts in Texas to do anything about access to mental health? I don't think they rank very high. No, they when don't. It comes
8: to that. If you go to a community like Uvalde, they'll tell you, well, they've taken away our mental health, any kind of help that we've needed here. They've t- they've taken it away. Um, This is a thing that uh, the governor likes to do in Texas. He comes out and he says mental health right away. Same, you know, with Uvalde when they came out right away, mental health, law enforcement officials, mental health. Um, But, you know, there are some people who are now even Republicans who are saying, look, something has to be done. We have to do something. And in fact,
1: in Texas today, something interesting happened because, as you know, two Republicans joined with Democrats to... Now, again, this was procedural, but they did vote out of committee um, a bill that wants to raise the gun purchasing age in Texas from 18 to 21. So that doesn't mean that they're going to vote for it on the floor. That doesn't mean it's going to pass on the floor of the state house. But they voted it out of committee, so that's the first step.
8: It's a small victory for the families in Uvalde and families of mass shooting victims um, to have this. Because in Texas, they didn't even think they could get this far. The fact that they fought so hard to get this is so meaningful. So the families were involved in
1: lobbying for this? The
8: Uvalde families were front and center. I mean, they were there testifying. I was there a couple of weeks ago. I mean, heart-wrenching testimony uh, from the family members who waited 13 hours. The committee made them wait 13 hours, close to midnight, and they finally testified. That's them today clapping.
1: Can you imagine? Why did the
8: committee make them wait? Oh, because they were busy on the floor arguing about other, like, other stuff. Um, And it was just ridiculous. And so finally today, and, and the only reason why people think this happened today was because of the shooting over the weekend.
2: I mean, that's something we've seen over and over again, right? You get one of these mass shootings and then there's this initial sort of push for gun control legislation that if you don't capture the momentum in the moment, it just goes poof into the air. I will note, you know, this piece of legislation to raise the minimum age, to fire, or to purchase firearms, quite popular in Texas, 21 plus, right? At over 70%, I believe it's 76%. It was and available.
1: nationally.
2: And nationally, over 80%. So this is one of the Many sort of diagnoses or ways to solve the problem, potentially, that's quite popular nationally. You know, another thing I'll just sort of circle back on, uh, you know, we were mentioning earlier on, you know, we've been on this couch before. Shimon and I having basically this same conversation about another mm-hmm. mass shooting. And, it, you know, when that happens, I almost worry that we're going to become numb to the problem, right? I actually ran a Google search earlier to see, you know, how often was the term mass shooting looked up. And I thought perhaps it would have fallen off this year because we become num- numb to the problem. In fact, it's up significantly, hmm. which to me is actually kind of hopeful in the sense, like, obviously mass shootings are bad, but we're not becoming numb to the no. problem. In fact, Americans are becoming more attuned well, to it.
8: Well, and also I wonder if people are just scared and thinking more about, I mean, I think about this when I go somewhere. Um, How could you not? Yeah, I mean, yes. How I could mean, you not?
7: I mean, mean, it's part of all of our yeah. lives now. So, There's such a disconnect also between what you know policymakers are doing on this, which is very little, and the, the real fear that people have and the real emotion they have seeing this, reading about this, hearing about this, being afraid to go to the mall to send their kids to school. There is a disconnect.
1: Yes, and when it happens at a mall, a school, a synagogue, a church... Um, you know, a, a Walmart, a parking lot, a, everything, you know, it's, it's hard to not have yourself think about where you might have to encounter something like this
9: you know i grew up in texas i'm from texas i'm used to that gun culture or people who like gun like their yeah. guns and are very happy to have their guns because they, they care about hunting you know, people in my own family who have a lot of guns and they, they care about hunting they're not about to commit crimes but you do i was home the weekend it was just last weekend i guess when the cleveland texas shooting happened just yeah. north of houston i was a few miles south and thinking people are going to get to the point where they can't say anything, they can't make any complaint in some of these states where you're seeing so many people uh, with guns because they'll, they're going to be worried about how the other person's going to respond. And I think that's a sad commentary. Yep, understood.
1: All right, thank you all very much for that. Thanks for the reporting so much, Shimon. Uh, meanwhile, an IRS whistleblower claims uh, that These claims are putting the Hunter Biden investigation back in the spotlight. So what's going on behind the scenes? And will we hear testimony? Sarah is digging into this story for us, and she has got all the details. Next. An IRS whistleblower alleges there's political interference coming from the Justice Department in the Hunter Biden investigation. The whistleblower's attorneys met with congressional investigators to explain what info they might share with Congress. CNN's Sarah Murray is here to fill us in. Sarah, what happens next here?
7: Well, look, obviously they want to hear from the whistleblower themselves, not just the attorney. But there's all this sort of wrangling that has to happen behind the scenes because the lawyer wrote to the House as well as to the Senate, to various committee chairs, saying, you know, my client wants to come in, wants to share with you this information about political interference. And the House and the Senate don't always play super well together, as you might imagine, especially as Senate's being run by Democrats, House being run by Republicans who really want this information. So there is some wrangling going on behind the scenes to figure out how do you choreograph this. I mean, if you're the attorney and this is your client, you want your client sharing their story once. You do not want two versions of this story floating around on Capitol Hill. So that's what's going on kind of behind the scenes right now. What is the whistleblower claiming? So this person claims that they are an IRS agent who is involved in a criminal investigation of a sensitive person. We know that to be Hunter Biden and that there are political appointees who have essentially prevented the case from being brought. You know, this this person also claims that they have information that would contradict testimony from a senior political appointee. We've learned that that's Attorney General Merrick Garland. Take a listen to a little of what Merrick Garland has had to say about this Hunter Biden case. I have pledged not to interfere uh, with that investigation, and I uh, have carried through on my pledge. It's like, look, I'm not interfering in this. The US attorney, t- attorney in Delaware is gonna be overseeing this. Go wild. This whistleblower apparently has some kind of information that contradicts this.
8: But here's the thing though, right? The, the person that's investigating this, Dave, David Weiss, mm-hmm. right, that's his name? He was, appoint- he was He's a Trump appointee, He's right? a Trump appointee. And he's had the case for how long?
7: He's had the case for a couple of years yeah. now. There's There's been, we've previously reported, my colleagues who've done great work on this, there have been a lot of issues in this case that there have been disagreements between uh, IRS agents and FBI agents about the strength of this case. There have been disagreements just about whether this kind of case can move forward. And also about kind of, uh, you know, Hunter Biden's sort of mental state while he may have been committing some of these alleged crimes, which he has denied because of course we know, you know, he's an addict. He's acknowledged that he was in recovery now. So, but this tra- Trump appointee is um, still investigating and investigating the IRS portion of this as well. So this person is investigating at this point what we understand to be tax crimes and a false statement. So, you know, our understanding at this point is these are still on the table. There has not been a decision to prosecute, not to prosecute. You know, Garland also said in that testimony, look, if this is a person who faced an issue where he could not bring this case, he could come to me. There's a way you can bring this up the chain at the Justice Department and we could move this forward if David Weiss decides, you know, there's a chargeable case here.
8: And also Biden's attorneys just met, right? With, with, to, uh, with DOJ's? Hunter Biden's Hunter attorneys, attorneys, attorney's yeah,
7: yeah, just yeah, just met, met. Uh, with DOJ to sort of uh, try to make their case for why you know they think these charges are bogus. Okay, let's potential talk, charges.
1: Let's talk about what happened today in the Eugene Carroll case because there were closing arguments.
7: That's right. There were pretty poignant closing arguments. I mean. On both sides, We heard from E. Jean Carroll's attorneys essentially calling Donald Trump a serial liar and saying, is this really who you're going to believe? They talked about the impact uh, that going public with these allegations has had on E. Jean Carroll's life. They talked about, you know, the impact of the actual incident, the alleged rapist had on her life. And then we heard from Donald Trump's attorney in this case, who basically said, look, they are trying to prey on your hatred that you might have for Donald Trump. People have strong opinions about him. We know that. But you can air those opinions out at the ballot box box, not when it comes to this case. And they said, we didn't put on any witnesses because how do you prove a negative? How do you prove that Donald Trump did not rape this woman in this dressing room so many years ago? Did they end up addressing why Donald Trump chose not to take the
9: stand? I know his lawyers didn't think he should, but he at one point was saying he very much wanted to. Maybe that was part of a ploy. But did they have to confront that issue? Because- Many people might think that the jury would want to hear from Trump.
7: Well, yeah. I mean, his lawyers made the point that Donald Trump did not have to be there. And again, how, what are you going to say to prove a negative? How are you going to make the case that this is something that didn't happen? But it's going to be interesting to see how that weighs with the jury, because they did hear from E. Jean Carroll. They did hear from a lot of witnesses on her side.
8: But they I, I... also heard from Trump.
7: Well, they the heard deposition. from Trump in his deposition tape. <laughs> right? Which was just for remarkable. For better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah.
8: I mean, that was remarkable. And I think that is really sort of, they've used it, right? Her lawyers today used
7: that as
8: a way to to sort of go go at him and go against him.
7: Yeah, I mean, talking about, you know, the infamous tape Grab Her by the P, and, you know, Trump does not disavow those comments in his deposition. He says, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, that's essentially true if you're a famous person. You, you kind of wonder how that sits with the jury to hear the unfortunately or fortunately line.
2: Uh, my question is, you know, obviously we're going to get an answer to this question soon enough, so it's probably not worth handicapping. But I have no concept of, you know, watching this case. If there's a there there, obviously, you know, it's a civil trial. It's not a criminal right. trial, so you only have to get to 51%. But, I mean, is there any concept of which way this case might actually go or we just have no clue at this
7: point? I mean, I think that's what's so hard is you are talking about an allegation that is very, very old, but we're also, you know, In a place that's very cognizant of the Me Too era, we know that there were a lot of allegations that have come to light recently that people didn't feel comfortable bringing a long time ago. They felt like they were not going to be believed, that they were going to be shamed, you know, and had good reason for that. So I really think, you know, it it could be a jump ball for people to say, look, there's just not the kind of proof we need here. But again, you know, there are people who could watch that deposition, that Trump deposition, and have sort of a visceral reaction to what they're seeing and and whether that kind of gives them the impression of if this is someone who would do this or not.
1: So we could expect a verdict as early as tomorrow?
7: So the judge is going to instruct the jury tomorrow, let them start deliberating. And I don't know. I'm going to be watching to see how long they deliberate for. Do they think that this is like a slam dunk one way or, the, or another? You know, there's absolutely not enough proof. Or we absolutely believe E.G. and Carol. We don't know how long they'll deliberate for.
1: Sarah, thank you very much for all of that. All right. Now we need to talk about this major border policy that is ending on Thursday. Tens of thousands of migrants are already gathered on the Mexican side of the border. How is the Biden administration preparing for this surge? Athena has the story for us. More than 150,000 migrants waiting in northern Mexico for the Trump-era border policy, Title 42, to expire this Thursday. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise warning today that Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas' job is on the line. Athena Jones is on top of this story for us. What's going to happen on Thursday?
9: (laughs) Well, it's anybody's guess what exactly is going to happen, but it's very likely to be messy based on what we've already seen. Number one, all of those thousands of migrants lining up on the other side of the border. We know that there's going to be a lot of political fighting and finger-pointing. Within states, like here in New York, between states, we know that Governor Abbott of Texas has been busing migrants to New York. He's resumed doing that, so that's another area of concern. But it's interesting because even folks on opposite sides of the aisle, so like Congressman Mike Lawler from uh, Rockland County, that's about 30 miles north of New York, one of the counties where New York wants to send migrants, Even um, that Republican congressman and Mayor Eric Adams here in New York City both say this is a federal issue. It's a federal problem. And any sort of long-term solution is going to have to come from the federal government. But as we know, uh, this has been a a very difficult problem for uh, lawmakers to solve. It's not something that the Biden administration can do on their own. And the closest we've come, I I think we'd all argue, is back in 2013 when the Senate passed a bipartisan immigration reform bill, but then it, you know, died in the House. And I don't think there's any higher chance now uh, oh. that there's more eager people on a couple of are more have eager to participate. on that,
2: Harry? On uh, that. I mean, look, you have a Republican House. You have a Senate that's basically divided 50-50. But, I mean,
1: do you have numbers on how the public feels oh, about yeah, we you have, have, we have?
2: We have numbers on everything.
1: You do. You really do. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, that, that was basically rhetorical. You're <laughs> so numbers, right. he wakes I mean, up. You
2: know, look, when it comes to this particular, you know, ending, this title, we know that the public is opposed to it, right? We know that. That was what the polling showed us In the middle of last year, I have no reason to believe that's changed. And and more than that, you know, I can't think of a better issue to be in the sort of light of spot uh, than this one for Donald Trump, who, of course, won the Republican nomination back in 2016, running on immigration. Now it's back in the spotlight. This is setting up beautifully for him. So on the one hand, obviously, we have the E.G. and Carroll thing going on, which is not necessarily good for him. But on the other hand, you have this issue, which is particularly good for him. And what is he running 30 points, 30, 35 but points ahead ask, in the Republican polls? right how, now.
8: How much different is what like the current administration, the Biden administration is doing on the border versus what, let's say, like the Trump administration yeah. was. I mean, has this been.
9: Well, we know this title 42 was yeah. something that the Trump administration put in place and that Biden held on to and. It was it was the reason was a public health issue. It was was because of the coronavirus. Now that that emergency is lifting, this is lifting along with it. You do have some Democrats who have said maybe we can extend it. There was a bill being looked at there on the House. We know that House Republicans are planning to vote on an immigration bill very heavily focused on border security. And they're planning to do that on Thursday. That is the day that Title 42 uh, expires.
1: What's the Biden Administration's plan for Thursday. I know that they are sending 1,500. They're surging mm-hmm. some more military to the border, 1,500 beyond
9: that. The, the, those 1,500 troops are not going to be doing law enforcement. They're going to be helping fill the gaps. But they have, they announced this six pillar plan. One of the things they want to do is encourage more uh, asylum seekers, for instance, to apply in another country. So before even. Dealing with the border, uh, but I have to tell you that, that that the issue is is really raising a lot of heated emotions uh, here in uh, in New York because of the the uh, the decision that Eric Adams has now made to bus migrants. At least he has a plan. He's announced as of last week to bus. They say about three hundred adult male migrants to hotels in two counties north of the city, and those county officials. Don't, don't, are not having it. They say that we're not ready for that, we're not able to do that, and that Eric Adams is a hypocrite because he's doing to us what Governor uh, Greg Abbott of Texas did to him.
1: Do we have some of that? Or do we have... We do. I believe
9: we have. We, it was a very, very highly emotional uh, press conference today with a lot of local officials. One of them is the county executive for Rockland County. That's Ed Day, and he had some pretty harsh words for the mayor. Listen to that.
2: The mayor is engaged in human trafficking of the worst kind. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth about how wonderful he's taking care of people and what he's doing, he's putting them in the worst possible situation.
9: So they're really, really angry up there. And that same county executive also came out directly and called Adams a liar for saying that they had given proper notice to the counties. There's some back and forth there. There's also the... the, uh, folks in the city side say that they are misunderstanding. For instance, that press conference in Rockland County today, they, they were talking about. 340 some adult males going into this hotel. Their concerns were about, you know, there's no transportation nearby. It's no it's a hotel off of a route, you know, a highway kind of on the side of the road. We would check it out. They're just they're concerned about their lack of capacity. They think that that number 340 would be five times the number of homeless people currently in Rockland County. And we're talking about a town of what fewer than 5,000. But the city officials have come back and said that look, this is not it's 300 or so adult males, up to 300, I should say, between two locations, not just that one lo- hotel. It still in sounds County.
1: complicated. I mean, it's it just still- sounds complicated. They, it they is. If they don't have a, a, jobs and places for food and how long are they going to be able to live there and who's going to pay for them and all of that.
9: And that's another concern because the city says they're going to pay for, to house these, uh, the, these migrants, give them uh, medic- access to medical care, you know, food, three meals a day, that sort of thing for four months. But their, their question is, what happens after four months?
7: And this is not the only place that's going to be having these fights. I mean, sort of, I don't want to say nickel and diming, because these are human beings, but sort of going to figure out, like, what can you do with these people? What kind of services and how many people can we actually accommodate? All because there isn't an appetite for a real federal solution. I mean, yeah, Republicans will put forward their border security, but Republicans are also, you know, chomping at the bit to impeach Mayorkas. So this is like a political opportunity for them to go after the Biden administration again.
9: And it's very easy to raise fears about the concerns on, about an over, you know, tapping out the resources. People, communities feeling that they're already at capacity. And certainly New York is feeling that. A lot of these officials today were saying, look, New York got a billion dollars in the state budget. Why are they now shipping their problem to, up to us? New York would say, look, we're doing everything we possibly can to come up with a spot to put yeah. these, these, the, these, this influx that they all predict is going to come they're predicting up to 800 migrants arriving in the city a day and they're talking about housing them everywhere from you know Tenson Central Park Prospect Park the parking lot at city field which is the Met stadium a YMCA an airline, uh, airplane hangar at JFK so they're really pulling out all the stops to try to figure out a way to deal with this and it's it's a real sign that this is it's going to be a big issue, and it's not going to go away very quickly. Up in Rockland County, they're talking about ways they can block these buses from even coming.
8: And they're talking about if the hotels, right? They're talking about fining, fining the hotels if they like two thousand dollars a night or if so. two thousand dollars a, a person a day, is a
9: person. because a it's against town code. The, the city's plan is to house these migrants in these hotels for four months, but the the, the local ordinances in Rockland County, for instance, or in Orangeboro, where this one hotel is, um, they don't allow someone to stay in a hotel for more than 30 days. So that's so illegal the, as far as they're concerned. But no one, none of these
8: folks in Rockland County have been yelling at Abbott about what he's been doing, right? It, it's just like, you know, they're yelling at... Eric Adams kind of... Just because it's getting closer. Right? Yeah. It's, it's
1: the, it's the not-in-my-backyard mm-hmm. issue. And so suddenly, now that it's encroaching in their backyard, suddenly now they have, a, obviously, a vested interest and don't have a plan. And it's this is a tough one because it's no longer just the border states that have been shouldering the burden mm-hmm. of this for years. So by sending... I think that Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis, by sending it to... Them, yeah, some migrants I from New see, York yeah. and Massachusetts have gotten everybody's yeah, attention. Yeah, now. Absolutely, and yeah. making a, bit, a real point.
2: No, okay. I was just going to say we've been trying to do immigration re- reform since before I was born. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean that's really what's going on here, and it just seems like you know we started the show, we were talking about gun violence and mass shootings. We couldn't can't seem to solve that problem. Immigration reform. It seems like we can't seem to solve that problem. It obvious, honestly feels kind of overwhelming. You they know, are. there seems yeah, to be all the... We used to be, yes, we can, and now it's like, apparently we can't.
9: Politics aren't getting things done. They're not bringing the solutions, it seems. Who does it favor?
1: That All uh, oh, that is certainly the feeling of a lot of Americans. Thank you very much for the update. Obviously, we'll be watching that very closely. Then there's this new poll on how voters feel about President Biden and his age, his handling of the economy, and the potential rematch against Donald Trump. It's not great news for Biden. Harry's going to walk us through the numbers next and what we need to pay attention for. He's ready. I've never seen a readier face than that. <laughs> Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, who's expected to announce that he's running for president later this month, is lobbing some harsh words at President Biden tonight.
5: I think he's failing his job because he's incompetent. I don't, I I refuse to say because he's too old or he's too frail or he's,
4: uh, I think the bottom line is he has been co-opted by the radical left in his
5: party.
1: So a new poll shows the president's age is a concern for voters. It also shows that Donald Trump is leading President Biden in a potential rematch. Harry has the poll numbers. What do we need to know, Harry?
2: Well, why don't we take a walk over to the magic wall? I'm going to get some exercise okay. in. <laughs> and watch this is this. what
1: passes for exercise it, in Harry's life. At 11.40 oh, wow. p.m.? You're it,
2: winded. It's been up since, like, what, 5? Yeah, okay. Something like that. So why don't we take a look at this ABC News Washington Post poll, and what do we see? We see Donald Trump up by uh, 6 points, 45% to 39%. And, you know, this is just one poll, but one thing that's so interesting to me about this is, Every single ABC News Washington Post poll so far done this season has had Donald Trump ahead of Joe Biden. There have been three of them so far in the 2024 cycle. Compare that to the 2020 entire, entire cycle, zero, count them, zero of the ABC News Washington Post polls had Trump ahead of Biden. So this is very clearly a different picture. Still, I of course have to point out the other polls, right? This is my job. I like looking at averages. And if we look at some other national polls that have come out over the last month and a half. Biden's ahead of Trump in all of them. In Ipsos, Biden up by five. W- Wall Street Journal, Biden up by three. Quinnipiac, Biden up by two. But I think the large message that you should take away from all of this polling data is that the race for president of course, it's not, or the election wouldn't be for a while, but at this particular point, it is quite tight, which is very different from the picture we saw at this point in the 2020 cycle. And now my exercise is done, and I'm going to come yeah, back. Or you must, must are be exhausted. You
7: must
1: be exhausted. All right, so Jeff Zeleny was out on the campaign trail at, in Michigan last week, and he asked a voter what he thought of a Biden-Trump rematch. So
8: we'll play this.
2: Ooh.
8: Oh, I think it sounds awful. I think it sounds awful. You want to know why.
3: <laughs> uh, you know. Why
0: do you think it sounds awful?
3: Well, I think we need a new generation of leaders. I think we need uh, people with fresh ideas. I feel if it were a rematch, we would get the same conversation. We would get the same pathology. So I personally would hate that.
1: A very astute voter there. That was a woman, obviously. forget my he pronoun. Um, but the point is, is that voter, it's interesting that this is how it's shaping up because voters don't want to rerun.
2: No, they, they don't want to rerun. In fact, we've seen that in poll after poll after poll. This to me, though, feels a little bit like deja vu, not of 2020, but of the 2016 election. Why do I say that? Because that was the first election in the modern era in which both candidates had an unfavorable rating above a favorable rating. That is, they were both majority disliked. And that is what the polls suggest right now for both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. So ultimately, what this election may come down to, if in fact those are the two major party nominees, is the voters who don't like either one of them, which could account for upwards of a third of the electorate. Who do they go for? Do they go for Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Back in 2016, they went for Donald Trump and therefore he won the presidency. But the polling so far suggests that that group of voters who don't like either Joe Biden or Donald Trump are far more evenly split. And that's really the only way Joe Biden can win re-election, given how low his approval ratings are. The
8: thing are. is, like, I was kind of surprised by this poll, and maybe most people were. But the whole thing has been, oh, Biden versus Trump in a general election, the Biden would have the upper hand, right? I mean, that's sort of been a lot of the chatter. And I think, I don't know, I sort of have felt that's the way the Biden so people are. So you think it's an outlier?
2: I, don't, I mean, what do I know about polls? Is it out? But, is well, it out, I mean, we, we went through that yeah. lovely thing. Slide number three, in <laughs> fact, yes, showed us yes. that... But uh, you,
1: it, you're you not dismissing
2: it. No, I'm not dismissing you're, it. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. I, I would not dismiss Gary Langer, who's a very a strong pollster uh, with the ABC News and yeah. Scott Clement and... The rest of those folks over at The Washington Post, they have a very good history of getting elections right. So I don't dismiss it, but I think it's important to put in the context of other numbers that suggest, in fact, Were you
8: surprised by by, by that at all?
2: Not given the other ABC News, Washington Post polls that have come out so far this cycle. This is the third one that had Trump ahead of Biden. So, no, I wasn't surprised. Maybe I was surprised at the size of the margin, but I wasn't surprised by the fact that Joe Biden was trailing Donald Trump.
7: So what did you think of the economic numbers? Because those stood out to me as just, you know, how many people thought that Donald Trump was a better steward of the economy. I think it was like 54 percent when he was president compared to Joe Biden. uh, I think it was like 36 percent who said they thought Joe Biden was a better steward. I mean, if I'm Joe Biden, I'm thinking about how important these, you know, sort of pocketbook issues are to voters. I, I don't think I'd be very happy to see that number either.
2: I don't think I'd be particularly happy to see that number if I had a job in the White House. Uh, But I will point out, you know, that the economy was Donald Trump's strength during his presidency, right? His approval ratings on the economy consistently ran ahead of his approval ratings overall. If voters were just basing their 2020 vote based upon the economy, he probably would have won Mm re-election. Now the gap has obviously widened, right? And I think the real question is going to be heading into 2024— how dominant is the economy as an issue? Because in the 2022 midterms, much to our surprise, a lot of folks, it wasn't as dominant of an issue as I think a lot of us thought it would be.
8: But also, like, I re- in the poll, all the um, the potential criminal charges, I-, I thought that was really interesting. A lot of people felt that, I think the majority of folks felt that he should face some kind of punishment or some kind of
2: penalty. Yeah, I mean, this has been consistently right that, that you know, Voters don't necessarily trust Donald Trump when it comes to all these allegations. (laughs) And yet, and yet he still leads in a lot in a number of these polls, including this one. So, you know, voters are really having this balancing act where they don't like either one. And it's like, all right, I guess it's going to be this guy.
9: But my question is, in those instances when there is so much dislike, this being the second time around, how closely is ABC tracking enthusiasm? Because how many of those people who are are just going to sit out? Certainly. Among younger people who are becoming discouraged. And I think some of the the, the numbers they noted were about people who supported Biden last time around and his approval being soft among people under 30, people living in cities, that sort of thing. How much is there is there tracking uh, how likely people are to ultimately vote, how to make a pick?
2: Yeah. So, you know, this is something I've looked at for a long period of time, which is, you know, trying to understand how enthusiasm converts into actually voting. Right. And what we know from the poll data that we've seen so far, there was this Grinnell College poll came out, done by Ann Salzer, I believe it was out in March. And what it actually showed was that Biden voters were about as likely to say as they were going to vote as Trump voters back from 2020, despite the fact that we've had other poll numbers suggest that the Trump voters are more enthusiastic. When it actually comes to saying that they're going to vote, the Trump and Biden voters were about at the same level. So this may be a case where a lot of people don't necessarily like the choices they're handed, especially on the Democratic side, but they really don't like the other guys, so they're gonna come out and vote.
1: Harry, thank you very much for all of that. Up next on The Lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they are looking out for on The Horizon. We are back with our fantastic panel of reporters to tell us what stories they're keeping an eye on. We call it On the Lookout. Okay, Harry, go. Uh,
2: Victory day in Europe was uh, 78 years ago, believe it or not, the end of the World War in Europe. And there's less than 200,000 American uh, servicemen who are still alive at this particular point. I believe there were upwards of near like 15 million who served during the war. So just a shout out to all of them. A great job. Um, won the war. I, you know, it was something my father was always so proud of uh, as a young boy back then. So uh, way to go. And we continue to remember them.
9: Thank you. Oh, so Thank sweet. you for that. Athena. Well, I want to see what happens with this Title 42. It's going to lift on Thursday. What is the border going to look like? But also, what are these counties up, up here going to do? Uh, now, it's not just Rockland County. Orange County both declaring a state of emergency, trying to keep these busloads of migrants out. But they wouldn't be very specific today about what their plan was to make that not happen, apart from fines or possibly an injunction. And so who knows what kind of dramatic scenes we can see play out if, if they do try to send Bus, Where bus will you be on Thursday? City. Do you know yet? Well, I'm doing I'm, I'm doing another Title 42 story because um, I believe it lists in, in in the evening. Yes. So during the day, I'll be going to Connecticut because I've been look, talking to organizations that help asylum seekers and refugees, which are different. Asylum seekers cannot work legally, and so uh, for until they get work authorization. So I'm doing a story looking at kind of the human side of a recently arrived um, immigrant from Central America and how they how they kind of make their way sure. once they get here. Because yeah. that's, what, that's what's going to be waiting for, for all the folks coming All out. right, we'll be looking out for that. Thank you very much. Shimon?
8: Uh, so digging in more on the shooting in Texas, we're hoping we can hear from officials tomorrow. So far, none of the investigators have had any press conferences. They've not taken any questions. So we're hoping that tomorrow, perhaps after a few days of them conducting their investigation, gathering some information, they'll start to answer some questions. Because up to now... They've not answered one single question.
1: No one knows how to get officials to answer questions (laughs) like Shimon does. So (laughs) I'm glad you're on the case. Okay,
7: Sarah, what are you looking out for? I guess I'm your pop culture moment of levity this week. There are a lot of very important stories happening, but also Taylor Swift's East Coast swing begins later this week. We're a little bitter. She's not coming to Washington, D.C., but I will be seeing her in Philadelphia later this week. And man, this is a woman who knows how to gin up But <laughs> wait, but wait. How many times
8: have you already okay, seen her? I
7: have maybe seen her twice. As my, my right. This might be my third time. This is her third time <laughs> going. <laughs> i counting. There's new stuff happening. She announced that soon she's going to she release th- Taylor's version of Speak Now. Everyone wants to know who she's wait, dating. Wait, didn't you go to, like,
8: Arizona? Or like Yes,
7: for <laughs> opening night, obviously. But there's so much intrigue now. People want to know what happened since she split up with Joe Alwyn. There's a lot to discuss. So oh, my gosh! New- wow. Thank you for educating us A lot of, a lot of, us of that. Taylor Swift headlines this week. Yeah.
1: Very good. There Sarah, we go. I did not know
8: you, you were a through and through.
1: No, so good to know. All right. Thank you guys very much. Great to have you here tonight. So tomorrow on CNN This Morning... Sending your child to school only four days a week. It is a growing trend. We have data on the impact it's You're having coming. on students and parents. Are you on this show tomorrow? I am. That's my segment. That's my segment. sleep here. Morning. We're teasing Harry's segment. Sure. All right. Well, it's going to be even better than we thought. <laughs> Thanks for watching CNN tonight. Our coverage continues now.